The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, Congresswoman Jane Harmon was a leader in Congress, where she served nine terms representing California's 36th district, where she became a leading figure on security issues as a former ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. After she left Congress in 2011, she joined the bipartisan Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars as its first female director, president, and CEO. Now Distinguished Fellow and President Emerita of the Wilson Center, she is an internationally recognized authority in U.S. and global security issues, foreign relations, and lawmaking. Her new book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe, details how four administrations have failed to confront some of the toughest national security policy issues and suggests achievable fixes that can move us toward a safer future. I'm pleased to welcome my former colleague on the Democratic side of the aisle and a great friend, Congresswoman Jane Harmon. Jane, welcome. Thanks for joining me. You know, as I welcome you, I wanted to point out to our listeners that you were a Democrat and I was a Republican. And yet we still managed to talk and get things done something that is really missing in Washington today. Reaching all the way back to your executive branch years with Jimmy Carter, what do you think you learned from that? Well, if I could, let me go back five years before that when I came to work in the United States Senate and ultimately became chief counsel to a California senator named John Tunney and worked on the 
Senate Judiciary Committee. In fact, I was chief counsel of the Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights at a time when Joe Biden came to the Senate as a young senator. What I learned from all these things is that it really matters when people work together. And I saw it in the Senate in the early 70s. I saw the fights over civil rights. I saw the end of the Vietnam War. I saw Watergate and saw that. Then I saw Jimmy Carter, who had no Washington experience, come from Georgia and bring his homegrown team with him. And I saw the ways that didn't work as well as it could have either. And he, he made some good decisions, like adding human rights as a plank of our foreign policy. I'm sure you agree with that. He did the Panama Canal, which I thought was a good thing, but he badly underestimated the resources we would need to free our hostages from Iran, and that was a catastrophe and something I think Obama learned when we went in after Osama bin Laden in a very successful raid almost 20 years later. Did that executive branch service whet your appetite for the security committees? or Because it's, you've had an amazing record of armed services, intelligence, homeland security. Did you decide that was your focus? Well, I was always interested in international issues. Right after graduating law school, I spent a year in Geneva, Switzerland, as the deputy to the head of international affairs at the World Council of Churches. And that was fascinating. It was during the Vietnam War. And so in the Carter administration, I was deputy cabinet secretary. I wouldn't say I focused on international issues much. But right after I left the Carter administration, I became special counsel to the Defense Department. And that's when I started really learning. And I think the clincher, I was elected to represent what I call the aerospace center of the universe, where most of our intelligence satellites are made. This is in the Los Angeles area, just south of Santa Monica. It's called the South Bay have many triple PhDs who work on satellites. And there's the Los Angeles Air Force Base, which doesn't look like an Air Force Base, which is that basically the satellite and rocket purchaser of material for our Defense Department. So that's when I really learned. And I wanted to be on the Intelligence Committee out of the box. But Tom Foley, then the Speaker of the House, said I couldn't because although it's a leadership committee appointed by the Speaker and the minority leader, he owed the one slot to somebody senior to me from California, and her name is Nancy Pelosi. So I didn't get it. And it took me six years to get a slot on intelligence. But that was the best fit for me. You, mean, you have a lot of these relationships that between Biden and Pelosi go back virtually a lifetime. <laughs> true. That is true. Which is what happens, I think, is just keep persevering. So when you look on where we are today. And it's kind of appropriate that we're taping this when we are faced with a whole series of, I think, very tough decisions. And you talk about insanity defense, which, by the way, I really think is exactly right. I mean, I think your core principle, that you these huge bureaucracies, and they mindlessly are going over again and again what they already know how to do because it makes them feel good. But they're hiding from really big threats and really big issues. I really like the title. What led you to decide to write it? Well, I left Congress in 2011 because the partisanship drove me crazy. And I was offered a job to succeed Lee Hamilton, one of the giants in the Congress over many years who co-chaired the 9-11 Commission, to succeed Lee Hamilton as the first woman to head the Wilson Center, which is a bipartisan oasis. And when I got there, one of the things the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars 
focuses on is books. And I saw a lot of other people writing books, including some of the staff, and I thought, ooh, I want to write a book. And it took me a while to decide what kind of book I wanted to write. I didn't want to write a book as you know the first woman in the room, while that has been true much of my career. That isn't how I think of things. You know, I'm certainly aware of my gender, but I try to be the best qualified person in the room, not just because I'm female. And... So that wasn't it. I didn't want to write about my childhood. I wanted to write a policy memoir, and it really took a while to get it focused and then to do it. And finally, the quarantine, which has been horrible, much worse for other people's families than for mine, was wonderful for me in one respect, which is it gave me real time at home to sit in a room and think this through. And the title, since you commented that you like it, doesn't come from me. It came from my youngest of four children, my daughter who, when she heard my original title, said, Mother, that is boring. What you're writing about is insanity defense. And so the good news is that we have kids smarter than we are, and she was very helpful. I think it was Einstein who said, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a sign of insanity. I was aware of this because with President Clinton, we created the Hart-Rudman Commission. And when I stepped down as speaker, he was very generous invited me to serve on it. So I spent three years looking at it. And we really do have, as you point out in your book, a system that was structured in 1947. And we have this huge bureaucracy of very smart people who cleverly defend what they're already doing. And it seems to me that that's an enormous problem. I mean, you've looked at it now for literally almost a generation, and you know how really hard it is to get the system to open up and to get it to think differently. As you view all this and as you've written about it, I mean, what is your gut feeling about how big the crisis is for our very survival? Well, let's put another piece on the table, and that is the United States Congress, which also has a committee system rooted in the 18th century, and people fight to the death to chair committees and won't give up an inch of jurisdiction. So, that's part of the problem, too. The 1947 reference has to do with the fact that the National Security Act that we have, that it's still on the books, passed in 1947, and it created the big pieces of our defense and intelligence system. It was in place on 9-11, which was a massive security failure. It was in place when we produced the very wrong intelligence on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And so... After that, some of us in Congress, on a bipartisan basis, I mean, I worked very closely with Pete Huckstra, whom I know you know, who was chairman of the House Intel Committee at the time. I was the ranking member, and whom I'm still in touch with, who's just completed his term as ambassador. And we decided we were going to change this. And boy, oh boy, was that a steep hill to climb. This is the point. Congress was dug in. Duncan Hunter, then the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, opposed us. A guy named Dick Cheney, former House member, who was at the time vice president of the United States, opposed us. But on the other hand, we had some momentum going on, and we had friends in the Senate, Susan Collins and Joe Lieberman, who at the time were the Republican chair of the Senate Homeland Committee, and Joe Lieberman, I think was then an independent. He had been a Democrat, ranking member on Senate Homeland. So we did it, and we got through all the obstacles, and George W. Bush signed our bill, and then... Making it happen was an, <laughs> another nightmare. Rearranging deck chairs is really hard in government and in Congress. 
And still, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which I think is well run right now by somebody who happens to be a woman, Abril Haynes, first woman to do it, is functioning well, but it was a slog. So your point is right, Newt, that getting government to give up turf and to reorganize both on the executive side and the congressional side is a gigantic challenge. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. In the last administration, we were trying to get a couple of very specific things done involving 5G and the Chinese firm Huawei. And you could get the president to say yes. You could get the president's chief of staff to issue an instruction. You could get the secretary of defense to sort of say yes. And then somewhere inside the machine, there'd be a mid-level bureaucrat who'd go, well, I don't know that we need to do this. And it was a great case study. What one of my favorites is a 
books and TV series called Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister by Anthony Jay about the British senior civil service. And I've concluded that we have nothing to learn from them, that our civil service is fully as capable of undermining any administration in every direction. I first encountered this when I was a freshman in 1979, and Carter was president, and Carter was trying to slim down the defense system, and he had designed a proposal for the Navy. As you know, he was an Annapolis grad, and he had designed a real focus on the North Atlantic and being able to keep open the lines of supply in case we had to reinforce Europe. And so I'm over as an innocent young freshman having coffee with the chief of naval operations at the time, who just hated Carter. And he said, do you realize that I have had to uphold the 200-year strategy of the U.S. Navy? And I thought to myself, wait a second, I'm a freshman congressman being told by the top person in the Navy that he's methodically undermining the commander-in-chief. And it was just sort of the, the beginning of my introduction to the world as it really is versus the theoretical world that we're dealing with. But assuming you and I could magically get the attention of the larger system, and I agree with you, that has to include large parts of the executive branch beyond the Defense Department, and it has to include the Congress, and enough members who actually understand what they're doing that you can sustain it, what would you have them focus on? Carter was in the Navy, and he studied under the legendary Admiral Rickover, and that was a big part of his history, and I think that credential helped him be elected president. He had very minimal foreign policy experience, but the Navy career was one that he played very artfully. Oh, and he was from your state of Georgia. He once told me that he knocked on every door in Georgia. I was a college teacher, and I knew Governor Carter pretty well. He was a very active reform governor. It's interesting, and a creative guy, but he couldn't make much happen. Again, it's the point that we're both making. There is just enormous pushback in the bureaucracy. And the tragedy, Newt, is, first of all, what do we need in in this dangerous world where we just had a massive ransomware attack that could have crippled half of our distribution of fuel in the United States? Fortunately, hasn't yet. But what do we need? We need protection against current and future threats. We don't need investments in legacy systems to fight World War II or the Cold War. And pulling away from that is extremely hard. I actually think we're doing better, and I'm not giving all the credit to Joe Biden. Some of the things were started in the Trump administration. Some of the things were started before that. But the point of my book is that we still, as of this minute, I guess two weeks ago, we got a foreign policy strategy from Joe Biden. But over four administrations, we really didn't have one after the Cold War. And we paid a huge price for that. We were very transactional and reacted to each crisis on its own terms instead of, and this is something you would applaud. I know you do because you're a big thinker. Instead of articulating what America's role is in this new world, that's much more dangerous, much more complex, multipolar, We're not the sole superpower, and we weren't. We thought we were, but we weren't in the 90s. And what is our role? What do we want it to be? And how do we generate public support for this? And how do we fund it, whatever it is? And those are questions that we didn't answer well for four presidencies. No, I think that's right. And I think that answering them at the sort of presidential level and then answering them at the congressional level and then answering them in the bureaucracy, each is a huge journey. Assuming that the process is underway, 
What would you have them focus on? When you think about the new threats or the degree to which we have to change our perspective, what are you really talking about? Well, again, I'm starting with the premise that we want a foreign policy that Americans support. And I'm sure we'll discuss Afghanistan in a moment, but I would remind you that it was Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, who said we need to end the military mission in Afghanistan, which I agree with, in spite of the enormous dangers of doing it. I think the articulation of this interim national security strategy by Joe Biden, expressed by our Secretary of State Tony Blinken, is very interesting. Shorthand, you know, they call it foreign policy for the middle class. I call it taking the foreign out of foreign policy, making it relevant to average Americans. And they think, and I agree, that in addition to the massive threats of China and Russia, and they are threats and they were identified in the Trump administration. There also are other threats, including domestic terrorism. We're seeing that all over the place, sadly. I'm not just talking about right-wing extremism, but I'm talking about domestic terrorism. But there is right-wing extremism. Domestic terrorism, climate, and this worldwide pandemic, which we should have been able to predict, should have been able to plan for, and it has been catastrophic in terms of loss of life and loss of jobs. I think that's right. On the one hand, you have global challenges that you could think of as threats, although sometimes they're just things that exist. There's no person hidden behind the wall, for example, on climate change. It's a condition you've got to deal with, irrespective of what you think the mechanisms are. But part of what I guess concerns me is when you get down to it, you do get into these cutting-edge, yes-no kind of things. And Afghanistan's a good one, I think, to chat about, because I have very mixed feelings about it. It's now the longest war we've had. I don't see any evidence that we're actually winning. I think we're holding our own. I don't think, despite having fought Vietnam and then come back and fought Afghanistan, I don't think we have a strategy where somebody can say to you, if we do A, B, C, and D for the next eight years, this will happen. I think what we have is a long holding operation in which you could argue the Taliban has done about as well as the local Afghan government. And if you had to bet, I think you'd agree that the government we support would have a very hard time surviving unless we're very careful in how we pull out. And looking at this whole period where we've both been active as public figures, so to some marginal extent we both own a piece of this thing, how do you both assess up to now and what would you do going forward? Okay. Well, I agree with every single word you just said. Imagine that. I do. Right after 9-11, every member of Congress, House and Senate, with one exception, Barbara Lee of Berkeley, California, voted to authorize the use of military force against those who attacked us. They weren't all in Afghanistan, but most of them were. And we were quite successful moving against them. Not totally successful. You know, we had a couple of glitches, which sadly allowed Osama bin Laden to escape, later to be captured and killed, which was a good move, by the way, I think. We went in for a mission against those who attacked us. Then what happened? Mission creep. I mean, just exactly what we're talking about. We didn't have an articulated strategy for the day after, or as my very good friend Dave Petraeus always asks, how will this end? And I recently had an argument with him. It's very civil because we're very good friends, and I think people should argue civilly. I respect that about this. He supports keeping in a small number of troops, but he also supported the big surge, 
which I had my doubts about, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. And what have I concluded? Basically what you said, that there are no good alternatives, that the only issue is which is the least bad alternative. And I think that the articulation that first came from Trump, but now is coming from Biden, that we should end the military mission is right. Now, of course, I read about this attack on the Afghan school the other day, this horrific thing, killing 30 girls and wounding 50 others, deliberate attack on these young women who were trying to build a future, probably by the Taliban. I don't think they've acknowledged doing it yet, but who else would do it? Three bombs. At any rate, that's dreadful. Would our staying there with 2,500 troops change that result in six months? I don't think so. I don't. And the Afghans have an army of 300,000 people. We've tried to train them. Again, Dave Petraeus and I have argued about this. He thinks they're reasonably well-trained. I don't, from any evidence I see. We've put trillions of dollars in there. We've lost thousands of American lives, and there have been thousands of Afghan lives lost. And so now what? I think we changed the mission. And we were beginning to change it during the Trump administration. And he did have an able diplomat. Zal Khalilzad, who's Afghan-born, negotiating with the Taliban as his envoy. And Zal is still on the job, which I think is good. I'm high on him. But I think what we do now is we end the military mission by 9-11. I think that was a good choice of date, two decades in. And we still provide training assistance for the Afghan troops, and we surge intelligence resources we also work with the neighborhood. There are big changes going on in the Middle East. Some of them started by Donald Trump, where Sunni governments are talking to Israel and where there could be a realignment, including Iran. Sunni governments are also talking to Iran. That would, in many ways, box in the government of Afghanistan in ways that would be more constructive. And last point I would make, I've heard Tony Blinken say this, and I agree. He asks, does the Taliban want to be a pariah forever? Just maybe there's a possibility that if we shake this thing up enough, one, we end an endless war, and two, we actually give an opportunity to the Afghan people to shape a government that they haven't been able to shape, including women, that would be much better for them. So I'm curious, one of the things that hit me recently, because we spend a fair amount of our time tracking China, what if the current Afghan government decides that its only survival strategy is an alliance with China in which it gives them mineral rights in return for their bringing, sort of as we leave, a Chinese military mission arrives. To what extent does that actually matter to us? Well, it wouldn't be good, obviously, and I know you would agree with that. But I think in the net, we have to assess where our biggest threats are, and I would argue that some of them are at home, and certainly China in broader terms is a threat. But if we say, ooh, China's in Afghanistan, let's imagine, I don't know what the chances of that are. Let's make a big fuss about that, and we take our eye off of the larger confrontation with China, which certainly includes 5G. But at any rate, I would think about it differently. I was just on a Caribbean island briefly on a short vacation, and guess what? The airport was built by the Chinese. The Chinese are building a huge mission on this island where all we have is a post office box. And we do have a mission in New York in connection with the UN. But Chinese outreach is happening in the world. Should we 
just make a big fuss about each place? Or should we have a strategy where we outcompete China, which I think we could have, and play on our terms, not on their terms? I do think it's a challenge that's going to be with us for probably the rest of our lifetime, certainly, and maybe longer. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me take a slight detour, because you did just spend 10 years at one of the great intellectual think tanks that we have in this country, the Woodrow Wilson Institute. What was that like? You've been very generous and allowed me to come over several times and chat with people. And I was always impressed with the extraordinary quality of the people that end up at the Wilson Center. But So what was that kind of experience like? Well, thanks for asking that. It was wonderful. And by the way, I think you came once with respect to one of your books, and then you came back to get briefed by some of our experts on China, one of whom is the legendary Stapleton Roy, who was ambassador to China, actually raised son of missionaries in China, and very involved in the opening up of China around Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. Wilson is a nonpartisan institute. That's what I loved about it. Lindsey Graham called it a safe political space. I also loved that about it. And I was scrupulous about making sure that we reflected civilly and respectfully all points of view when we discussed issues. I loved that. To be fair, looking back at my career, even though I spent nine terms in Congress, I'm more interested in policy than politics. 
and I care about good policy. And in this book of mine, I recommend some policy fixes that I think could work, including a few suggestions about fixing Congress, where I think there is a broken business model, where each side blames the other side for not solving the problem, because if they work together, they would be bipartisan. And then that would cause whoever did that to have a primary challenge. And sadly, I think getting reelected is now more important than putting the country first, which just breaks my heart. But anyway, so back to Wilson. We really explored a lot of the most important global issues. We certainly did stuff on 5G. We have a science and technology program that is superb. We run three schools there for congressional staff. When I was a staffer, there was nothing out there. But we train in cyber, artificial intelligence, and foreign policy. And we've had over a 1,000 staffers, bipartisan, come down. It's just a mile from the Capitol. And among other things, get to know each other. I mean, part of this monster situation we're in is people don't know each other and they're terrified of talking to someone in the other party. And so we're trying to blow this up, bottom up, get the staff to know each other and then hope it will trickle up and get the members to know each other. That's great. So you must have an unusual level of patience to get programs like that to work. <laughs> That's funny. I have no patience. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm youthful, I'm active, I have high energy, and I'm impatient. <laughs> and I think you're pretty impatient, too. But you undertake projects that re absolutely require patience. They also require relentlessness. I don't take no for an answer. I mean, we're going to do this. We're going to make it happen. I also have, as you do, an enormous acquaintance in this town of members, former members, executive branch types that I call on to be helpful. Example, there's a fairly new book on James Baker, who was, you know, the extraordinary first Texan country club type who morphed into this more extraordinary best friend, alter ego to George H.W. Bush and others. Peter Baker, no, no relationship to him, but Peter was a scholar at the Wilson Center and with his wife, Susan Glasser, wrote this amazing biography so we were going to have it on at the Wilson Center. And I said, well, I want Jim Baker. I want to interview Jim Baker about all this. And I got him. I called him. And he, he had been on the Wilson Center board, which is a presidentially appointed board in the early 90s. And I know him. And he did it. And, you know, we sort of talked about all the incidents in the book. And that made it so much fun for me, but I think maybe fun for our diverse audiences, too. That's interesting. He had some set of skills and insights, which I don't quite know how he acquired them, but he's really remarkable. The book doesn't explain that. I mean, here he is, this country club guy who tries to emulate what his father wants, goes to Princeton, joins the right clubs and all the rest of it. Wife dies very tragically in her 30s. Then all of a sudden, marries someone else, but he becomes friends with George H.W. Bush in his country club and they're tennis buddies. And then George Bush gets into politics and Baker comes with. And there's a scene in the book where Bush 41 says, Baker, you got to come with me to Washington. And he said, well, there's a problem with that. I'm not a Republican. And <laughs> I mean, really, it was just astounding. And then he is, I would say most people would agree, probably up there, maybe singular, but certainly in the top few of people who could make things happen in government. On our side, I think of him as a comparable to Kissinger or Schultz. I mean, people who just somehow got the magic and understood how to do it. I 
totally agree. And Kissinger, by the way, is only 98 this month. I mean, hey, his name is on the door of our China Institute at Wilson. It's called the Kissinger Institute for China and the U.S. He's still active there. He and I sat next to each other for 10 years on the Defense Policy Board. After I left Congress, I was appointed to the policy boards for the Director of National Intelligence, the CIA, the Defense Department, and the State Department. But Henry and I sat next to each other. And in the last couple months of the Trump administration, in case you missed this news, we read in the newspaper that the Trump administration had decided that 11 out of 13 members of this board were terminated. And among them were Madeleine Albright, Henry Kissinger, Eric Cantor, and me. Go figure. I think it was a search for mediocrity. They said, if you're above a certain IQ level, you can't be here. It's the politics of these internecine systems where you can't quite figure out who's really in charge and you can't quite figure out what they're really trying to accomplish. I'm watching with similar interest in terms of who Biden appoints and whether he brings back sort of mainstream Republicans as part of the mix or whether it becomes overwhelmingly liberal Democrats. Well, I hope he does. I mean, there's a guy who knows everybody. I mean, he's invested... 45 years in this, or more, almost 50. And I doubt there's anyone he doesn't know. I'm very pleased that he's meeting with six Republicans in tough states about infrastructure. And I hope that that bill is bipartisan. It will be better if it is bipartisan. Yeah, one of the arguments I lost in the early stages of the Trump administration, I tried to convince them that if they would open with a bipartisan infrastructure bill, rather than focusing on repealing Obamacare, that the tonal difference for the entire rest of the administration would be amazing. Totally right. Totally right. And they didn't. And they didn't repeal Obamacare, oh, by the way, and they didn't get anything done on infrastructure. Yeah, but they, for some reason, both Ryan and McConnell were adamant that they had to do Obamacare. I still don't get it. And I remember, but funny story, I invited Paul Ryan, whom I like, and who had a pretty tough time as Speaker of the House, not that you missed it, to come to the Wilson Center. He said, I can't do it. And I said, well, why, Paul? He said, I just hated Woodrow Wilson. And I said, Paul, Woodrow Wilson's been dead for 100 years. I'm inviting you. He said, well, I really like you. <laughs> and he didn't do it. Now, Paul's a very smart guy, so I probably shouldn't say this. But that's a wonderful example of somebody who's mired in the past. I mean... <laughs> You have to wonder what he was really thinking, although I'm both a big fan of Wilson, and I think that it's interesting to watch his various weaknesses come out. He's a complex personality. Guess what? So are you. So am I. I wasn't your biggest fan when you became speaker. That's in the book. I mean, why? Because I felt the Congress became more partisan, and I did not like that. And I represented a lean Republican district, and I very much wanted it to continue to be bipartisan. I know. And the challenge we faced, frankly, was that we could never win the majority if it remained bipartisan. And we've been out of power for 40 years. But you represent a district that we really thought we should own, and you were so popular back home that it was just hopeless. There are those moments in life. I remember there was a New Yorker cartoon one time. The guy had on his desk an inbox, an outbox, and a two-hard box. <laughs> Well, in the book, I, there's some pictures in the middle, and one of them is a billboard 
that was put up in my district for my first re-election. That's when you came to power. And many marginal Democrats like me lost, but I didn't lose. But on the billboard, it says, Republicans for Harmon, ask us why. <laughs> and they literally listed on the billboard. They did it. Well, that's smart. I like that. That's great. You have always truly been bipartisan. You've always been accessible. When I was speaker, even if you didn't like some of the things I was doing, I always felt I could get a straight answer from you. And I very much cherished and identified with your commitment to American national security and the degree to which it's something you worry about every day of your life. And of course, we've sustained this friendship through your decade at the Wilson Center. I hope we'll sustain it for many years to come. And I thank you for your book because we're going to have on our show page how people can buy it. We're also going to put on the show page a link back to the Wilson Center because you also had done an enormous job of shaping it. And I think you'd agree it's one of the places that should be understood far better than it is. Well, let me just say, Newt, thank you for that. It was a labor of love. I don't do anything halfway, nor do you. And I really care about ideas in the future. And the book is not just a memoir looking backward. That's not me. It's a memoir looking forward of how we can fix and confront these things, these problems that make us less safe. But it will take the executive branch, the Congress, and the private sector pulling together, especially given the new threats. I hope people will engage with this book and the ideas in it, and I know you are, and I'm grateful for that. And I was delighted to accept your invitation promptly when you invited me to be on this podcast. It's called Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe, and it is on our show page. I urge everyone to read it. Thank you very much for spending this time with me. Thank you, Newt. Take care. Thank you to my guest, Congresswoman Jane Harmon. You can find a link to her new book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.